Welcome back to Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano. We have something different this episode for you in an interview with writer Scott Edelman, the writer of the Thanos Tracks backup story from Logan's Run number six, as well as the Scarecrow stories from the Bronze Age that Brian Zeno and Tim Price have been helping me cover uh, for the last few years right after Halloween. Although sadly, Brian was not able to join us this recording. Since we are out of the Bronze Age Scarecrow stories, because there's only three of them, I figured it'd be fun to have Mr. Edelman on to talk about his work on both those, as well as whatever little tidbits we can get about the Bronze Age Marvel, and we did get some fun stuff out of him. However, we weren't able to get everything we would have liked. In fact, we got nothing about the Thanos Strack story. You see, Al, this is a bit embarrassing. My wife and I have tried to piece together what happened. We think it was the tuna sandwich I had about an hour or two before the recording. As we were recording, going, everything's going fine. And then I started to feel warm. And then warmer. Like feverishly warm. You can hear it near the end of the episode as I'm speaking a lot less. I became very fatigued and I could just feel it building up. Looking back, maybe I should have asked him to just continue on his own, but I really wasn't thinking straight at that point. All I can think of was to politely end it because I thought it would just be rude to just leave. But that point was moot because a minute or two later, I had no choice but to do that. I raced out of the room and into the bathroom and barely got the seat up when I turned into Linda Blair. I'm not going to go into more details than that, but uh, yeah, I should have left a few minutes before. And an hour or so later, I was feeling perfectly fine, except for some embarrassment. I really hated the treaty guest that way, but Scott was a perfect gentleman about it when I emailed him later that night. He was an amazing guest and had some awesome stories, and if he ever wants to be back on, I will happily have him back. So anyway, <laughs> here's mine and Tim's conversation with Scott Edelman. If you want to hear more of his stories, check out his podcast, Eating the Fantastic, links in the show notes, where he takes out writers, comic pros, and others out to dinner, and we get to listen. If you want to hear more about Bronze Age Marvel, by the way, check out his August 10th episode with, our, with artist Howard Bender. There are some really great stories in that one. All right, we're going to put a promo in here, and then on with the interview. Hey everybody, Michael Bailey here with a trailer announcing the return of It All Comes Back to Superman. Well, sort of the return of It All Comes Back to Superman. Desperate to stay relevant and chase those sweet, sweet podcasting dollars, I've decided that since all of the shows on the Fortress of Bailitude podcasting network are moving to a new hosting platform, that I would start It All Comes Back to Superman over with a new number one and name. So really, this is a trailer for the sort of new, pretty much the same as before, It All Comes Back to Superman Superman Series 2. It All Comes Back to Superman Series 2 will be... It's gonna be... Oh, God. Are you hearing this music that's playing right now? In all honesty, I chose it because I thought it had a good trailer feel. But the more I'm sitting here listening to it, the more it sounds like something... You know what it sounds like? It sounds like something you would hear in the background of a motivational video your job made you watch that is full of corporate jargon and buzzwords and useless affirmations trying to convince you that working there is some freaking higher calling. 
Or, you know, you know what else it sounds like? It sounds like it would be behind an ad on YouTube that is trying to sell you something that is supposedly life-altering, but in reality is at best useless and at worst dangerous and probably should be illegal. Yeah, you know what? You know what? I'm done. I'm done with this music. Yeah, it's 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 over. I'm just gonna go with the music I've licensed for the show. I, I should have just done that from the beginning. <sighs> there, that's better. Anyway, it all comes back to Superman series two. Will be pretty much like the first series, just with a convenient new numbering system. Episodes will be erratic at first, because it's me, but hopefully by the end of 2024 they should be released on a regular basis. Some episodes will be one and duds. Some will be part of rolling series with names like The Earth 2 Superman Files, and Close Maketh the Villain, the superpowered makeovers of Lex Luthor and Brainiac. There might even be holiday specials every once in a while, as well as episodes from the previous feed making their way over to the new one, just to kind of freshen them up a bit. No matter the subject, movies, comics, action figures, prose, the show will be all about my love and fandom for the greatest fictional character ever created. It all comes back to Superman Series 2. Part of the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network. Available through Libsyn on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatching platforms. Show notes and other bits and bobs will still be available on posts over at www.fortressofbailitude.com. So Tim and I are here with creator and writer of the original Scarecrow story, Scott Edelman. Scott, how are you doing tonight? Uh, I'm doing great. How are you guys? Oh, well, now that the Skype issues seem to be settled, we're, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, we have to well, talk the about Skype too much. Demons. You know, you could curse them and jinx them or something. It could all fall apart again before the conversation's <laughs> over. That's what happens. They, they, do, their, they do their thing, yeah. especially at this time of year. Yeah, I'm not sure if these things, if it's technological or mystical in nature. I don't know whether to call IT or a priest these <laughs> things sometimes. <sighs> but anyway, we are here since the last couple of years. We've been talking about the, the the original Scarecrow stories from the 70s, and we've, well, ran out of them because there's only three. So we figured, well, let's stretch this out a bit more by getting an interview with the creator. So, Scott, I said, no, you said you wanted to say something before we started. Well, I want to point out to everyone who's listening to this to take everything I have to say with a grain of salt and how faulty my memory is. And I know this for a fact because I went back and looked at interviews I had done 40 years ago and 30 years ago and things I wrote 30 years ago or 25 years ago, and they don't always match up as to what I remember. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so what I'm saying now in the closing days, I don't know when this goes live, but we're in... Uh, as we're getting down to the waning days of 2023, uh, if anyone does their own uh, research on past interviews with me and say, hmm, okay, uh, which of these things is correct? The things he was uh, writing in the comics journal back in the early 80s or the you know, the things in newspaper articles or the thing in Foom in the mid-70s, which is 
which is correct. They're all correct and none of them are correct. So, so what we're about to do is just you know throw more uh, confusion uh, onto this history. So, so I'm just putting out there that this is what I think it is now. And uh, if I'm wrong, well, I won't be offended if if someone pulls out a memo from some time that says, well, gee, that's not really how it was because maybe they're right and I'm wrong. That's okay. I understand. I, I was actually looking at some of the same things myself, and I saw one part where you. Had apparently written that you were planning on doing a follow-up story and you you even said there like several years ago in your live journal like i was i didn't know this <laughs> <laughs> so well yeah i have and i have no idea what i was really uh intending people and of course we're jumping all the way to the end of the scarecrow now but uh uh when i edited foo magazine for marvel friends of old marvel that was their internal fan magazine for a while and we had news on what was upcoming in the comics and what it said about the Scarecrow is, you know, when it was going to have its own title, but never did, uh, was that it said, you know, coming next issue, uh, the Scarecrow turns superhero as if we were going to make it more a superhero character. And I have no idea what that meant. You know, I have no memory of what was it, that was going to be. You know, like there was a period with Doctor Strange that you might remember uh, with, when Gene Collin was drawing it, when they tried to make him more of a superhero, they... They put a blue mask on him. There were mm-hmm. several issues mm-hmm. when he, he tried to, and I think it was they were trying to say, oh, let's make him look more like a superhero or something. What that was supposed to mean for the Scarecrow, I don't know. Maybe he was supposed to be fighting supernatural villains that were attacking New York or something. I, I really have no idea. So, uh, so that is just one great unanswered mystery, uh, you know, about what was supposed to happen. But, uh, um, you know, it, it was a comic that was part of the Marvel explosion and then the Marvel implosion. So, uh, you know, what aspects of it you want to talk about, uh, I don't know. But uh, things were exciting there for a while until they all of a sudden weren't. <laughs> yeah. Well, since we went to the end, let's jump to the beginning now. Let's, I just want to do a few uh, basic questions just for anyone who's not completely familiar with you. So how and when did you start getting into reading comics? Well, I don't remember a time when I wasn't reading comics. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, it was the kind of street life where people were always trading comics. Little kids were trading uh, comic books on the stoop in front of their apartment building. Uh, when we would go to the beach in the summer, there'd be a flagpole that all the kids would bring their comics along and trade them. We were not precious about them. A lot of rolled up comics and you know, many comics I was reading that were coverless and before I was born because I guess they just get passed along and passed along. So, you know, I, when I try and remember, gee, what was the first comic book I read? Uh, I, I It's hard to say because I remember reading the first Flash, but I certainly did not read it contemporaneously. It came out in 1956. I was born in 1955. I wasn't reading it. Uh, it was just one of those comics floating around uh, in the group. Uh, I, I certainly remember the, the first issues of the Fantastic Four. I remember the pre, uh, pre-superhero monster comics that Marvel was doing before Tales to Astonish and Tales of Suspense and all of those comics were taken over by uh, superheroes. So there was really you know, never a time when I was not involved with comics. I was at the perfect age to become a Marvel fanboy zombie. Uh, but when you're born in 1955, it means you're reading Fantastic Four number one at age six. 
perfect time to fall under his spell. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, re- I remember standing there at my local candy store back when there were no dedicated comic book stores and you were buying them at the local, what we in New York would call candy store, really stationary store. It's a place where you get your, uh, uh, you know, ice cream and candy and newspapers and cigarettes and everything. And standing there, I only had 12 cents and X-Men number one and Avengers number one had come out on the same day. And standing there, only able to buy one. And of course, in these pre-days of pre-fanzines and pre-internet and pre-everything, things just appeared. Like, you had no idea mm-hmm. what, what was happening, unless it was mentioned in a bullpen bulge or something. But I remember so many things that were, what the heck is this? What, what is Captain Marvel and Marvel Superheroes number 12 when I came out? I had, you know, anyway, so I had to decide which comic should I buy uh, of those two. I ended up, of course, buying the Avengers, because when you look at something with all the characters you already know versus a bunch of people, who are these X people? I don't know. Uh when you have something with Hulk and the Thor and Iron Man and all the characters in it, you buy that one. I later got the other one, but uh, but you know that is one of those blistered into my memory uh, things. So it's very much uh, Marvel over DC for me. Uh, you know, all the time I remember preferring uh, them, and it was just the perfect age to be falling under Stanley, writing the bullpen bullens pages and letter pages, and falling for all of the wonderful hyperbole put on the covers. Uh, if you go back when I did a reread of Marvel a while ago and I read all the Spider-Mans over, you know, and compare them with the DC stuff, DC was not putting on the cover, buy two copies so your grandchildren will have a pristine copy, or, you know, this is the villain that people will be talking about for the rest of the year, or it's like, what do you mean? We never heard of this villain before. How could you say this about a villain we never heard about? You know, or Fantastic Four number three, which famously called on FF number three, the greatest comic magazine in the world for the third issue of what? What yeah. is this? You know, so so uh, <laughs> I just fell under all of that and loved it uh, tremendously. And, you know, he, he, the, the bug bit me and, you know, I joined the Mary Marvel Marching Society as soon as I could. As soon as it came out, I was, if you have the old comics and they would put... Uh, 25 names of new members in different issues of the magazines and I still have the comic that had my name uh, in it. I think I was 10 then, 10 or 11. You know, but uh, in any case, uh, I never thought at the time I'd someday be working for Marvel and it was a very short leap for me from one to the other because my first comic book convention was 1970 and I started work at Marvel uh, June 24th, 1974. So it's only four years later that I went from being a pestering kid with a sketch pad begging for autographs and sketches from people to working with some of those people and uh yeah when i think to get back to a little bit of scarecrow in there that john ramita senior who i was begging sketches for in 1971 i still have those sketches like when i was 16 years old that when i'm 20 years old he's finding all the characters for the scarecrow which are printed in the text pages in the back of Dead and I number 11. So to go from one side to the other side so quickly is pretty amazing. And I read, this is not to say I didn't read the Marvel, the DCs as well, because A, it was not that expensive back then because there were not that many comics. You know, Marvel at the beginning was limited to, I think, only 10 comic books a month. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because of the publishing deal. Mm -hmm. 
because DC was handling a distribution or DC distributor, the distributor DC owned was handling distribution. So there were only 10 comics and, you know, so you, you had the bug, you had to read everything, you, you know, you'd then go mm-hmm. and read the gold keys and the Charlins and anything you get your hand on. So no, I was, uh, I was hardcore and, uh, you know, went to my first comic book convention in 1970 as soon as I was allowed, I was not allowed to go in 1969 because I was considered too young to be left behind while my family would go away for the summer. And uh, one of the few regrets of my life. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, just something that people might not know, and, uh, and people who are real comic historians know that in 1969, there's a famous photo taken of the banquet in 1969 with everybody facing the camera and everybody who couldn't afford to pay for the banquet standing there looking as well. So this photo, this group photo, basically every single person that was in attendance there. And uh, I could have been in that photo, but, you know, but there are all the people I eventually worked with and my future bosses, you know, Mm -hmm. Marvin Lynn and my future sister-in-law, my future wife, Irene, who I met my first day at Marvel comics. So, so I really regret not doing that. And of course, I'm going far afield from the Scarecrow. But you get me started talking about the early days of comics. I give you an hour before we even get to the Scarecrow. So <laughs> that is fine. Nothing wrong with that. So no, that's fine. And you know what? For your regret, hey, it, there's probably other people who wanted to go who couldn't, and they didn't get a job working there later. So could kind of even out a bit. <laughs> no, no. Well, in 1970, when I look, I think there were only 238 members listed there, and I look and I say, okay, well, you know. That guy was eventually my boss, and this guy eventually drew something of mine, and there's my wife's name. And, you know, most of those people in that small room, it was much smaller back then when you compare Comic-Con in San Diego that have 150,000 people, and this thing had just a few hundred. So uh, it was a much more intimate place where people did not necessarily feel under attack uh, by the fans begging for people. I mean, I, I witnessed the beginning of people starting to charge for sketches. It used to be they just draw a sketch. There weren't that many people walking around with sketch pads. So if you ask someone to do a sketch, you know, they, they do your sketch. And uh, probably in 1972, not as late as 73, it's probably 72, Neil Adams said, nope, I'm charging $10 a sketch. And he sat there and in an hour made 60 bucks and went off and bought a nice steak dinner. So, <laughs> I, you know, I've got one of his... Uh, Batman headshots from 1972, but that's when people started saying, why am I doing all this work for free? Uh, But I was very lucky to have been there at that extremely pivotal time before too much commercialization, before there was a price guide. There was no price guide. So you're having to work on your own gut. Certainly there was no slapping. There was no grading like that. You were having to decide for yourself and trust what's the difference between fine and very fine and good and you know very good and things like that so uh so the the, the price guide sort of changed everything so it's a much more innocent time shall we say yeah. yeah but it was a lot of fun well just to real quick say to go on because your your story of starting sounds familiar in, as in when i first got comics they were given to me and I had relatives who like worked in things like recycling where they would get like those coverless comics and they would just kind of give me extras of things 
So I understand. I, I completely relate to your whole story of getting all these coverless and ripped off cover comics. And the re- main reason I'm saying yeah, this or is the because- ones, yeah, the, the coverless ones, you know, the coverless ones, you might say, oh, those are comics that just some kid beat the crap out of. But the, the ones that have the top uh, third missing, yep. I don't know if you have a bunch of those. Oh, yeah. Those are the ones where the store owner was making out on it because back in the old days, uh, well, the really old days, you're supposed to actually return the comic book because no one got paid until uh, it's sort of they sent you a bunch of comics and then you returned the ones that were unsold and got credit for them. And then there came a point where it was, oh, we're losing so much money shipping these things back and forth. Why don't you just send us the first third or send us the logo? off the cover and promise that you're going to destroy the comic and we'll take your word that you destroyed (laughs) the comic. And then instead the store owner was selling them for a nickel instead of a dime or something. So yeah, you know, they, they were getting screwed. I have no idea what they did. And then of course, eventually when the direct market happened and they started non-returnables and things like that, it changed a whole lot. But, but if anybody ever saw something, uh, you know, missing a cover uh, that looked otherwise clean. You know, the ones that look like they were rolled up in a kid's back pocket and were falling apart without a cover, that's different. But the ones that look pretty in good shape, except for that cover removed or the top of it removed, that was some, you know, store owner uh, basically st- stealing money from the company <laughs> and selling something and, you know, you know, not ever having to pay for it. So there are a lot of those floating around. Well, the reason I said that was because one of the comics I had, it wasn't a return one, it had the full cover. But one of the early ones I had, like when I was really young, now granted this was several years after it came out, was Dead of Night number 11. So The Scarecrow was one of the earlier comics I read. Oh, wait, wait as a coverless one or is it not coverless? No, it one? wasn't coverless. My, my uncle okay. used to work in some, I don't know exactly what he did. Uh, <laughs> as I said before and other things, he was an Italian who lived in Brooklyn and New Jersey and did stuff of recycling. I don't ask too many questions. Yes, yes. He knew Tony Soprano. Yeah, but he. Well, I, I feel as if I there. should apologize to you for that having been one of your first comics. It's uh, I, I wish it had been a better <laughs> comic book that you started with in that particular one. I mean, no, that was no, trust me, Dead of Night Eleven. We went over that re- a couple, you know, when we went a couple couple years ago. We really enjoyed that one. Oh yeah, that we was had a blast talking. Really good. Had a blast talking about it. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, it was. I, I I believe it was literally my first comic book. I was. Uh, allowed to script a few pages. I can't remember if the Tony Isabella issue of the Avengers that he had me script a few pages on, but that had nothing to do with the plot for that one. Uh, uh, he was just, you know, needed some help in the early days. But uh, and I was involved in a plotting session. I think I can't remember. I think that issue of the Defenders that had everybody in the world plotting it over dinner uh, after work when they needed a plot really quick. I think I'm on that as one of. 10 people credited with plotting that issue with it. I think the Fender's annual number five, but, uh, but this was my very first comic book that I actually had a chance to, uh, to write. So it, I read it and I say, okay, well, it's not, it's not bad for the first comic book I ever had to write, but you know, I, I do not put it high up there in the, in the scheme of things because it, you know, it could have been, could have been better, but uh, I enjoyed writing it. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed working. I, I loved the fact that John got John Romita to design the individual character sketches. Uh, you know, the the sad part is I never got to see the plot line into a situation and what was actually going on uh, with that story. But hey, 20 years old to have something like that come out is uh, 
a you know, pretty amazing thing to have oh, it all yeah. over the place. Back when comic books had a higher circulation than they do now. So, you know, back yeah. then you're putting out hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of copies of all these things. And, of course, the cover was magnificent. Uh, if only, no, I don't want to disparage Rico Raval, but, but the cover by Gil Kane, inked by Bernie Wrightson, was about as magnificent a cover uh, as that could. I can't imagine anybody can't doing a better, better job. Than yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. than those two. So I, I was very pleased that that's the first anyone saw of it was that on the cover before they even opened the, the comic book. So. Now, speaking of those characters that you said Ramita did the uh, designs for, so Jess, Harmony, and Dave, we something we noticed when reading that, they felt very fleshed out for the first appearance of characters. Like, did you have a whole backstory for them worked up? Like, like Jess and Dave, for instance, they're brothers, but they have different last names. Or, like, were they based on real people you knew, and that's why it was so, they seemed so fleshed out and real? This, again, this is going to be one of the questions that uh, you... Uh, as much as you can. You ask. I mean, I, I did want them to, uh, you know, to appear real. All of their uh, backgrounds, I can't quite speak to why they ended up uh, two very different types of uh, of people with two very different interests, uh, you know, at this point. And uh, well, one of the things I, I wish that this had been a later comic is that... And this is a problem later with Captain Marvel is that people do not, or people should not just be plotting a couple of issues ahead. They should be plotting five years ahead. And as, as my betters did, you know, as Chris Claremont was doing with the X-Men, as other you know, things would happen down the road and, you know, they knew what was going on and were putting in the little Easter eggs back then before we call them Easter eggs. I don't know what we call them, but, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, the full depth and uh, you know knowing who the characters were. I did back then. At this point, I can't stir up uh, how they. I, I, I remember sitting with John Romita and explaining who these characters were, so he could uh, uh, you know help design them. But uh, in, in terms of a full memory of uh, of you know what their true background is and why they are the way they are and what childhood incidents uh, formed them. Uh, I was not a good enough writer at that point to do that. There are many things I, I learned later uh, as a writer about how to create characters that I did not know then working on my first comic book story. I mean, I remember just to go really tangential when I wanted to get out of comics and I went to the Clarion Science Fiction Writing Workshop and I had uh, a science fiction writer named Tom Dish as one of my teachers. And he basically told me, before you write any of your stories, because I guess he felt my characters were not fully fleshed out. He said, I want you to come up with a hundred things you know about your character, none of which might actually get into the story, just so you build who they are in their head. You know, what's their favorite flavor of ice cream? Who's their favorite aunt? You know, what was their dog's name when they were a kid? Uh, you know, all sorts of uh, things like that. What, what's their favorite music they like to listen to? And, and none of that may actually come out within the story, but if you know that, they seem more real to you and uh, to the extent that you could you know, bring them to life and their dialogue will come out of them sounding as if it's them and not sounding as if it's someone else. So uh, that's something I fell short of back in the, in the early days. Uh, so again, we just have to chalk that up into, um, you know, I, I could go back and I wish I had the, uh, the original plot written out for what that was that was sent or the script that was sent to Rico Raval. 
but I I don't have it. Doesn't exist anymore. Well, and makes sense. For those who don't know, I should point out. I don't know if we mentioned that in the back uh, of the magazine. This is one of the Marvel comic books at the time that was not done Marvel method. And I'm sure many of your listeners know, but for those who know, Marvel Method was done just like in the old days where Stan would hop on top of desks and tell everybody the plots and you'd just have a conversation or you'd, or you'd write it out like a short story and it would be up to the artist to paste the thing and then you'd come back and put it in word balloons. But at that time, Marvel and DC as well were using many artists from in Spain and the Philippines and they would therefore be sent full scripts. And then, therefore, that was written as a, a full script. I had no idea uh, what it would look like, and I just knew it was Rico Raval. I was familiar with his work from uh, horror comics and other things that he had done, uh, but I had no idea what it was going to be. So that was one uh, where there was not a story that was told to an artist that the artist then broke it down. This was So I was responsible for the pacing of it as opposed to all the most of the other things that were done Marvel method, like all my Captain Marvels and my Omega the Unknown, and all the backup stories that I did uh, for Marvel. This one was done the way all my DC comics were done from a full script. Well, that does then that explains something. And one of the things we did enjoy a lot in that first in those issues was how Harmony did not seem to be the typical. 70s woman of basically the the thing comes out and she just her job was to scream or get captured i mean yeah she did get captured mm -hmm. but she beats the hell out of those oh, yeah. cultists beforehand so it's nice to know that we can since we're talking to you not mr raval that we can give credit to you for that because you obviously did that full script like you said yeah and, and i wonder nice how job. much of uh, the, the well the change a lot of the change in women's roles uh, it was a generational change that Obviously, an awful lot of, uh, I guess I've been looking back on some of that in the Fantastic Four and others, that people have to remind uh, Marvel Girl and people have to remind Sue Storm what their powers are. You know, remember, Sue, you can uh, you can hover using your powers. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. I can do that in the middle of the fight. Or, or tell Marvel Girl, remember, you learned how to do such and such. Uh, you know, so many of the stuff back mm -hmm. done by Stan and the earlier generation of, of writers were the... You know the girl as uh, the girl is hostage. The girl is not uh, you know knowing as much. The girl having to be taught, or the girl just mooning over the uh, the hero. And as the next generations were coming in, and and when you break down generations, I I think I think of myself as the fourth. Would it be the fourth generation uh, at Marvel? Like like the first generation that came in. Uh, you know, forget the Golden Age. You got the Bronze Age. So the first generation. That came in as fans would be, I guess, you know, E. Nelson Bridwell, uh, you know, and someone like that. I'm not sure if, if Nelson and Roy Thomas and Gary Friedrich would be the same generation, but that's sort of the first generation of fans that took over the insane asylum. Next came Marv Wolfman and Len Wein, and you know, that generation, and then next came my generation, which would be, you know, Chris Claremont and Bill Matlow and Tony Isabella and me, those, you know, even though some of those were like a year earlier than me, that the, the vague path of a generation where generations are not 20 years. Uh, well, yeah. well I, my feeling is if you grew up reading someone as a fan, you're not in their generation, you're part of the next generation. So that's why I think of myself as mm -hmm. coming in in the next one. So that makes sense. Yeah. I, now, speaking of what you said about having, you know, trying to plot ahead or at least have an idea of what was going on ahead, 
when did you find out about Dead of Night being canceled? Because obviously when you were writing that back matter for issue 11, you thought it was going to go, you were thought there was going to be an issue 12. So like how far along or how much after did it come uh, it came out? Did you find out? Nope, that was it. Book's canceled. Batman wouldn't help them. So now the team's on their own. Black Lightning, Geoforce, Halo, Katana, Looker, Metamorpho. People of power with a new purpose. They are the Outsiders. The Outcasters continues its coverage of the Outsiders. And Mike W. Barr's team for the 80s has big changes on the way. With a new home, a new title, and coming soon, the Baxter series. You can find the show on Right On Network with your favorite podcatcher or listen at thehuntresspodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at BatOutcasters because to live outside the law or on Twitter, you must be honest. Well, I was responsible, if I'm remembering correctly, for the cancellation of more than one magazine because originally it was supposed to be in... Monsters Unleashed, I think alternating with Tony Isabella writing Tigra or Tigra. I can't even remember whether it's Tigra or Tigra, but uh, I think it's Tigra, but I could be wrong. I so Tigra. it was supposed to be done for that. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to have been drawn by Bill Drought, and that ended up never happening. And then Monsters Unleashed ended up uh, getting canceled before it could appear in there. And then I think Bill Drought uh, ended up never delivering it. And then we had to do something else. And I, there might have even been. One before that, which I can't remember, one other black and white title was going to be in other than Monsters Unleashed. I think it might have it was going to be in one of the giant-sized color books instead. The Werewolf. So, right, Werewolf by Night. Yeah, so this was so Dead of Night number 11 was actually the third chance for it to see print. Um, and the, the uh, issue that appeared in Marvel Spotlight was, as far as I knew, going to be in... Uh, Dead of Night number 12, which never happened. So, mm-hmm. well, I'm very proud. I pointed this out before. I think I may have written it when I did some kind of introduction for uh, the reprinting of the Scarecrow that uh, that two great Marvel characters appeared in the final issues of magazine of comic books, which previously had only published short anthology stories. <laughs> and I was basically talking about expecting you would think I was talking about Amazing Fantasy 15. When we were, I was really talking about Dead Night Number Eleven because Spider-Man was the final uh, issue, <laughs> in the final yep. issue of something like that as the Dead Night Number Eleven. But the Scarecrow did not have the same, uh, you know, the same ending. And uh, you know, talk about uh, things that um, I forgot and later remembered. I went back and looked at an article that had been written about my appearance on a radio show where Carmine Infantino also appeared on the radio show, who at the time was the publisher of DC Comics, and he said, we should sue you over using the name Scarecrow, you know, because, you know, we've got a character called the Scarecrow. And uh, nothing, of course, ever came of that. I know the name eventually changed to Strawman over uh, uh, to, to lessen confusion, I guess. But, uh, you know, there, oh, yeah, there are lots of names. Yeah. No, go on. Sorry. No, no, it's a lot. That was just a generic name. So, uh, um, anyway, but uh, and I said, "Gee, I don't remember that conversation. Whatever happened to that? Nothing, I guess." But uh, but the scarecrow <laughs> was the, the victim of the Marvel uh, 
well, the explosion and the implosion, it was part of one of the reasons why the only, the reason the Scarecrow existed is the same reason I existed and the same reason in 1974, my wife was hired to be on staff. I was hired to be on staff. Dave Anthony Kraft was hired to be on staff. All of a sudden, they were no longer limited to the number of books they could publish. All of a sudden, they could have they had the whole black and white line. They were allowed to publish monstrous titles within the color line, and they did not have enough people with the same talent who had appeared previously to do it, so they let all these kids take over. So there was that from a staffing and creative issue, and then we're all, we're all of a sudden wanting to publish a whole ton of books, and okay, Scarecrow number one, which actually appeared in the subscription ads. If you look at some of the subscription yes. ads of the time, <laughs> it's down there as a checkbox. I have no idea whether anyone ever bought to check it, but it was in there. Uh, the yeah, first you were wondering issue, that too. What, yeah, I mean, what was number one was, and if you have probably seen online, and and your listeners can go online, and if they Google Don Perlin Scarecrow, Don Perlin, who at the time was doing a fascinating job on Werewolf by Night with Doug Munch, was uh, uh, going to take over the Scarecrow, but he didn't have enough time to do what would have been the first issue. So the first issue was going to be drawn in the Philippines, as were the the second, the one that was Marvel Spotlight, was drawn by you, Ruben Yandok. I have no idea why it wasn't Rico Raval. It was just whoever happened to be available. So issue Dead Night number 11, drawn by Rico Raval. Marvel Spotlight 26, I believe, was drawn yes, by yes. Ruben Yandok. And uh, I'm not sure who was going to draw Scarecrow number one, which would have had a splash page from Don Perlin. So I had to do a splash page that just sort of has a poem on it with a, you know, the Scarecrow rising up uh, and sort of a Will Eisner-esque title of the Scarecrow uh, on it. And that's all that exists. I have no idea where the original art is. I just knew I had a, uh, a photocopy of that piece of original art. It would have been great to work uh, with Don Perlin, who is still alive and with us. It's something like 93 or 94. Oh, wow. uh, he, he he surely has no memories of it because all he ever drew was a splash page. He never got to touch the character <laughs> at all, except for that one splash page. But uh, he, you know, he is still around, and I uh, would have liked to have uh, worked with him. And then, you know, it never happened. And then, uh, you know, Bill Manlo, who was at the time uh, writing was Marvel two and one, right? So you know yes. better than I do, guys. It was Marvel two and mm-hmm. one, eighteen. Yes. Marvel two and one, yeah, the thing book. Uh, decide, okay, well, why don't we throw the Scarecrow in there and we'll sort of bring it to some kind of a conclusion. And uh, and that's what they did, sort of just wrap up the cliffhangery parts of the storyline. But, uh, you know, as to what it would have been had there not been that implosion, it's like, okay, we're launching a whole bunch of titles. No, never mind. You know, two months later, we're canceling a whole bunch of titles. Uh, so I, you know, in... You know, Foom, it does make some comment about, uh, you know, the Scarecrow goes superhero. And uh, what exactly I meant by then, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, if people go back and look at my uh, blog at scottelman.com, they can find all the various uh, comments and teases and hints uh, that I put in there about uh, scans of old things that are mentioned in Foom. Uh, you know, and things like that. Um, yeah, I've seen those, mm-hmm. and everyone listening, though, I will have links in the show notes, so you, you can link right to his site. Yeah, I was going to ask you, as, yeah. 
I was going to ask you, Scott. There's, you know, there's a lot there, and there's, as I said, there are things mm-hmm. I don't remember. What did I mean by, you know, <laughs> the, the scarecrow goes uh, superhero? Uh, and there's also the fact that, uh, you know, before the, the scarecrow, I was doing a character called the Grim Reaper. And if that had happened, maybe the scarecrow wouldn't have happened because it was sort of a, a, a similar supernatural uh, character. That, and Craig Russell did a drawing for that. And all that exists if from the year before uh, the scarecrow is this one drawing that uh, Craig Russell drew that was inked by Duffy Volan. And if Marvel had picked up about picked up on that, uh, you know, maybe mm-hmm. maybe it would not have happened. I don't know. So uh, it's uh, it is complicated, uh, you know, as to uh, uh, you know what actually was supposed to have happened. So. Uh, yeah, I wish all the uh, the paperwork I had still existed because, um, uh, you know, I have so much ephemera from those days. I have all the memos I have regarding the 1975 Marvel convention, which I ran. I had I have all my bullpen bullet so Stan soapbox that uh, Stan would give me each month because I wrote the bullpen bullets page for almost two years, and Stan would deliver the Stan soapbox, and I would write the rest of it. But um, you know, I, I just don't don't have uh, don't have that stuff. So a lot of the answers cannot be uh, uh, cannot be given to you. So um, anyway, so you're not solving any mysteries here today, unfortunately. Well, we're getting some answers. We're getting some answers yes. to some things, though. So that is helping us because some of the questions we had asked, mm-hmm. you are answering. Yeah, we actually have some written down uh-huh. that you actually that you actually have hit uh-huh. on already. Yeah. Yeah. But I was gonna, about to say I was something. Gonna, yeah. Yeah. I was going to just, I know this, I know this is going to be a, a thing, Scott, but you'll probably say, I don't know, but it's okay. Um, did you have a lot of stories in mind for the scarecrow and the cast? It already kind of even just like roughly figured out. And was he going to be like a horror character in the Marvel universe or a Marvel universe character with a horror bent or just his own little corner? I mean, cause like that second story in, um, uh, Marvel Spotlight like features a gigantic submariner fish, so <laughs> that felt very Marvel <laughs> in that mm. one. But the first story did not really. The first story didn't have anything that really made it necessarily be a Marvel story. It was a horror story, but so I was just wondering if if you can recall where you and you kind of like alluded to that with saying like I'm going to make it a superhero book now. It's like what does that mean? I don't remember anymore. So I understand if you don't really know, but I know. If, that, I if there's know, a general, I, if there's I'm a general sure. plan. If there was a general plan, I mean, you had I'm right. sure originally it was going to remain a hard character. Like it took a long, long time before, let's say, Dracula and Tomb of Dracula ever interacted with anything. Uh, yes. If I remember correctly, they even have right. Dracula meet Conan. Did Spidey meet Conan or Dracula meet Conan? I know Spidey, Spidey meets Conan. Spidey did. Dracula, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Spidey met Conan. I, th- I think Dracula interacted with someone, but there was a theory that these things should not inter- you know, intersect in any way. And, Dracula uh, eventually met up with Doctor Strange. That definitely happened. And I'm pretty sure the Surfer. But by then, by then, yes. he also was like he was. They were starting to really make Tomb of Dracula kind of more Marvel adjacent. And by the Werewolf point. met up with Spidey pretty early, although that was Marvel team up, yeah. not Werewolf by Night. But still, he was there. Yeah, I, I wish I could remember because I said, you know, it's when it's somewhere I wrote in Foom. I probably posted online somewhere that, uh, you know, coming up, the scarecrow turns superhero. It's like, what did I mean by that? 
um, I, I have no no idea whatsoever. I know sure. a lot of people mm-hmm. did a lot more with the character later on, which was at one point I was hoping, gee, are they going to use him in the uh, Doctor Strange movie? Because eventually he joined up with uh, uh, Nightmare, the Doctor Strange character, and a bunch of others uh, to have their own group of these supernatural characters. And I thought, oh, when it looked as if Nightmare was going to appear in... Uh, in Doctor Strange, maybe the Scarecrow would come along, but that was not to be. So the only thing that ever actually appearing of mine on the screen is Doctor Minerva, the character that Al Milgram and I came up with in Captain Marvel, ended up appearing in the first Captain Marvel movie, but uh, but yeah. uh, but nothing yes. else. But you know, I would love to know what did I mean by he turns superhero because you know you're not if if I guess if the assumption is that you know the painting is destroyed uh and the you know some of the powers still remain on this side of the where the the, the dimensions and the person has the powers and what do they do with them i have no idea what i was going to be you know, we're talking about i was 21 years old and in 19 that would have been in 19 uh you know 75 the first issue came out so in 76 77 what was i uh thinking about them i don't know so you're you're uh question about did i have long-term plans it's obvious that the plans changed pretty quick because i am sure that back at the beginning that there was no intention of it uh, being a superhero uh whatsoever and then at some point why i don't know was there a conversation with whoever the other in chief happened to be at that point what was going to happen uh, i don't know but by then it was uh it was much too late, and so the character lived on, uh, you know, in the Fear Lords, and uh, you know, and that was that. So uh, I wonder. I I hope I have not plumbed the depths of uh, of all of my memories. Uh, you know, you uh, because I did not reread the uh, the issues before this conversation. You probably have uh, a more of a concept of what was going on with the Scarecrow. Uh, you know, than I do at the moment. Well, we live in the magical time, thanks to these subscription apps, to read these, that these things are available at all, at the, at the you know, at your fingertips. So, you know, we're pretty lucky that this thing might have been, you know, relegated and um, kind of forgotten, but it's like, no, it's actually out there. So you never know with the way that they do deep dives and deep cuts in the MCU. I could see the Scarecrow being a background character in another werewolf by night one-off show, you know, it's possible. Yeah. I mean, come on. They yeah. brought back, um, what was his name? Ulysses Bloodstone. I mean, he's dead in it. Yeah. Uly- Ulysses Bloodstone is in the, uh, werewolf by night special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So who yeah. knows? Well, uh, it would be nice someday and it would be nice, uh, you know, whether, you know, to know whether I had a backup in which I could have, uh, uh, wrapped it up, that, but uh, that was not to be. So it, you know, it, it does not exist. Well, speaking of the uh, wrap up, of wrapping it up, since uh, he did have that wrap up in Marvel Two and One. Now you're listed as co-plotter. I did you have anything really to do with that issue? Do you remember, or was it just listed as co-plotter because it was your character, or because also they they do do like a two or three page flashback that basically kind of retells Dead of Night Eleven. We were just kind of we were, we were debating how much you actually were involved in that issue. Well, you know, and, and this is probably one of the 
saddest parts of uh, uh, of all this because you know under normal circumstances I would say well go talk to Bill Mantlo about it but of course Unfortunately, uh, yes. he is not he's yeah. not capable because of what happened to him of having such a conversation Bill was a wonderful guy a a bright mm-hmm. spirit always smiling always laughing always happy and you know the fact uh, that the accident caused a brain injury and he you know, no longer has the the intelligence or capabilities he had. I mean, they're keeping him comfortable. Uh, his brother's taking care of him, uh, and, and uh, you know, he's having his needs met. But uh, he is not capable of answering that question because I know I remember us having a conversation, but as to what the conversation was or who contributed what uh, in terms of wrapping things up, uh, you know, I. I can't say because, uh, you know, we would have had the conversation about it uh, so that he didn't. Because I, I know he was wanted to be careful about not stepping on toes. I mean, I remember that much that, uh, you know, just in case there ever was another use for it someday, don't, uh, you know, counteract anything you might have had plans for. But as to, uh, you know, how much we discussed, um, you know, I can't really say. Uh, one thing that I'm thinking of, what, what might you, you, you not know about the, you know, the Scarecrow is there is a sequence in there where there's a conversation that goes on about uh, a performance by Andy Kaufman at a local improv club in New York City. And if you remember, Andy Kaufman is the guy who was on taxi playing Lockdown, yes. one of the cab drivers, yes. and the guy who did Elvis impressions and did all sorts of... He did a character called the Foreign Man, which he talked in an accent, told very bad jokes, and did terrible impressions. Um, and I was always going to see him in New York at the Improv back before anybody really knew who he was. So when some comedian goes on and is weird, and you don't not really sure, okay, are they bad or are they? Is this guy talking in a foreign accent a terrible? comedian who can't speak English and then he breaks out into a perfect Elvis impression you know, after a couple of bad jokes but anyway uh, Andy Kaufman and I had a conversation at the improv where I said oh I work for Marvel I write a comic book called The Scarecrow would it be okay with you if I mention you in the comic book and have some people you know having just come back from one of your performances and he was okay with that and gave me his blessings uh, to, you know, to mention him in the comic book so uh that, that I was very happy with that, and I was I was very happy to talk to Andy Kaufman and seen so many of those early performances before uh, he became a big deal, as he later became one of the strangest comedians ever. But oh, yeah. uh, so that that was based on reality, uh, and was in there because of Andy Kaufman giving his blessings. Well, Just in case anyone cool. reading those few panels wonders, mm-hmm. we did actually. Mm-hmm. We did. We, we did assume that you had a chance to see Andy Kaufman since you were, we knew you lived in New York at the time. So we figured you had a chance to see him. So that confirms it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, well, I was awesome. just dragging everybody to see him because you know, the, the shtick he was doing was based on not knowing how strange a comedian he really was. You know, because I mean, I'll just tell you one shtick, which has which is a wide tangent, but it'll tell you something about how Andy Kaufman is is a. Uh, he was doing a song as a, he was playing a comedian, asking people to come up and sing that childhood song. If you're happy, you know it. Clap your hands. I don't know if you remember that. If you're yes. happy, you know it. Snap your feet. Mm-hmm. If you're happy, you know. So it gives kids something to do to burn off energy. Well, he had four volunteers from the audience to sing along, and one guy kept clapping his hands all wrong, and 
eventually, and he, as this comedian, starts yelling at the guy, and someone in the audience starts yelling at him to stop being so mean to this guy, and we think, oh, this poor, this person in the audience doesn't realize that this is a shtick. This guy is a plant. He's deliberately clapping off beat so that Andy Kaufman can yell at him, and oh, this person who he feels superior to doesn't get the fact that this is a joke, and then, after yelling at Andy Kaufman, the woman takes to the stage and starts beating him up. And for a moment there, you think it's real, and then you realize, oh boy, now he really got us. It was a double blind. It was first, he's got the one <laughs> oh, plan no. to, to, to screw up his act, and then he's got the other plan that they get angry to screwing up his act. So he really gets you. you know. So he was that kind of very weird comedian. Uh, so I was very happy to put him in, in an issue with the Scarecrow. But talk about planning. I wish, I, I, I wish there was, I wish there was a heck of a lot more I could tell you. But as I said, some of it is uh, lack of memory, lack of keeping on uh, content. But a lot of it is not being as good a writer as I would later, hopefully, come to be or have been or whatever. I haven't read any comics since the early '80s, but. You know, not having the understanding. No, you do want to have a vague idea what you are going to do years from now, uh, and you know, to have a five-year plan. And okay, this is this is the arc for the first year, and then this happens, and then that happens, and plan Easter eggs and so on. So um, that was you know part of the early days of my career. Uh, you know, I, I never had an editor turned to me either as far as I recall saying so Scott you know what do you think you're going to do with this let's say it is a book what are you doing with them 12 issues from now 30 issues from now uh, what's going to happen so that was not asked of me uh, these days I'm sure it would be with any uh, story that you're going to do so they kind of do it to the opposite extreme nowadays too which is almost to be a, a different kind of problem but yeah, well, yeah. everything these days is is uh, very corporate with a lot of corporate plannings, and we all get gather together in New York or California, or whatever, and have a council and plot things out forever. And uh, and I just look back at my days in comics, and it is ridiculous how loosey goosey it was, and how by the seat of the pants it was. As I, I mentioned earlier, one of the things I did was run the 1975 Mighty Marvel convention, the first convention they did on their own. Phil Suling, who ran the Fourth of July comic art conventions every year was in charge of the technical stuff, you know, dealing with the hotels, uh, renting out dealer space, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I was in charge of doing the programming and interacting with all the talent and all that kind of thing. So I still have all my memos back and forth with Stanley and Saul Brodsky. And I'm at that point, I'm 19 years old and I am responsible for organizing what will happen on the two days of the convention at 10, 11, 12, whatever. I've got all my memos back and forth with Stan and Saul and me. And we didn't have wow. the program locked down for, I, th I think we were still noodling about the program a week and a half before the convention was supposed to happen. And these days, if Marvel was going to run a convention, they would have it. They'd have their gathering a year earlier. They would have everything nailed down six months in advance and you know there'd be none of this. Oh, let's have a kid do it. But I think in, in that in those days, there's a lot of well, we we the previous generation don't really understand the kids, and you know who better to do this than the kids themselves? You know, 
who love mm -hmm. it so much because uh, there were a lot of people of the previous generation who were not fans and who were puzzled by people who were fans uh, because they were doing mm -hmm. things at a time mm -hmm. when working in comics was an embarrassment and you went home and you had a line say you worked in advertising because to tell people in the in the 50s and early 60s you worked in comics uh, uh, they would shun you um and even stan has mm. told stories about that how he would lie you know when people said oh what do you does. do i write and he, and he go away at the cocktail point, oh what do you yeah. write well you know i write for, i write for kids for children's stuff oh you write children's books and he'd try and break away you know and then, then he would finally admit that he wrote comic books and that would sort of end the conversation so uh a lot changed uh you know from the early days so they had all the fans right. come in mm -hmm. who loved it so much i think there was a lot of even though they thought it was silly, there was a lot of yielding to their knowledge of stuff because, you know, who better to, you know, proofread comics and, and, you know, write their internal fan magazines and do their calendars and, you know, all that kind of stuff than the people who loved it. But, but there was some puzzlement from some people. But, uh, but that's far afield from the scarecrow. I could talk to you about, you know, as much about comic books themselves as, as you want, but that, that gets off the scarecrow. Uh, topic. It was an amazing time back then. Well, well I don't think Al or I. I don't think Al or I mind hearing about comics in the history, do we, Al? No, no, not at all. But I know you said you had a time, so this is about that time for you. So don't want to keep you longer than that. I do want to thank you for your time. I really do appreciate it. Well, I was glad to be here. Glad to talk about. It. Uh, tried to dredge up my memory. Uh, who knows? Maybe there's a hidden piece of paper somewhere that will reveal more than uh, than I. But uh, uh, tonight, this is as much of the mysteries I can solve, and I, you know, I'd be happy to come on at some <laughs> some future date, you know, just to talk about other aspects of uh, of my comics career, just about you know comics fandom in general for those days. But we have plumbed the depths of the scarecrow, I think. Oh, we'd love to have you back some point. But for now, please let people know where else they can find you and what you've been doing. Well, uh, scottedelman.com is where they can go, where everything is. Uh, conglomerated all the information about my short fiction i basically moved on from comics to write uh, horror fiction horror short stories zombie short stories science fiction short stories i have a multiplicity of uh collections out there of my science fiction and horror stories uh, these words are haunted as my most recent short fiction collection if they want to uh, track that down there's also free fiction uh, online these days are online magazines that aren't charging people to read them. So they can find a couple of my short stories that came out in 2023 over at Lightspeed. I also have a podcast of my own called Eating the Fantastic, in which I take people out for meals and interview them and you're eavesdropping, you're sitting at the table. Because as I learned at my first comic book convention, when we would steal away uh, at 15 and go have French fries at the local McDonald's and to talk about comic books, uh, you know, uh, that talking about stuff with a meal, over a meal with your friends is fun. And it's not solely comic books. It's everybody, science fiction writers, horror writers. But over the years, I have interviewed many comic book people, uh, uh, mostly ones I worked with in the old days. I had Larry Lieber, Jerry Conway, Marv Wolfman, Paul Levitz, Don McGregor, all those guys talking about the old days. So if people want to look up those, they can just go to eatingthefantastic.com. Or, you know, go to Apple Podcasts and, and find the game that's fantastic there. So uh, I'm trying to preserve some history just as you two guys are. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Scott. 
and and have a great rest of the night out there and hopefully the record button was pressed and we were not just talking to ourselves <laughs> we can only hope podcaster i know the fears of that until i until the conversation ends and i go back and listen to it and go oh thank goodness it, i got it i got it it's not it, it didn't happen it's not filled with static or clicks or whatever so no uh, no i i hope you'll shortly have that sense of relief yourselves we we hope that the uh, that thor is smiling upon us and that Everything will yes. be fine. But thank yes, you so much right. for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate it. It's been fun to hear your history in in Marvel Comics and just a little bit about the Scarecrow as well. Because uh, yeah, it's what and great talking to you guys. To. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. You have a good night. You do too. Okay. All right, we're done with the interview. So a little different this time. We're just going to do the feedback here, our final promo, and then go right to the closing music. And this time, the feedback is for episode 184, Mephisto vs. the Podcasters, year 666, Firesword with Clinton Robinson. On Facebook, the post about that episode got likes and shares from Joe Sedano, Married with Content, which is the rebranded name of Married with Comics, Magazines and Monsters, Clinton Robinson, David Croson, Gene Hendricks, and Ranger Gord. On Twitter, we got likes, or X, I'm still going to get used to that. We got likes and retweets from Alan Sharp, Comics Over Time Podcast, Viet Win, Capes and Lunatics Podcast Network, Coffee and Comics, and Mac the Comic Monster. And on Blue Sky, we got a share from Richie Navarez. Don't forget, besides the other episodes of the crossover, including uh, Jeff and Rick present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, which actually had me on it, you can also hear me on the Magazines and Monsters feed in the Bronze Age of Horror shows talking about Werewolf by Night 22 and 23 with Billy. Links are in the show notes. All right, well, you have comments about this episode, or you just want to hear your name said there because you liked and shared. I'm good either way. Send us an email, resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com. On Facebook, just type in Adam Warlock or Thanos in the search box. We will pop up. And on X and Blue Sky, basically we are at Adam Thanos Pod. Once again, I want to thank our guest, Scott Edelman. Links for the, his podcast, Eating the Fantastic, which I really do recommend, and his website are in the show notes. Please go check them out. Now we are going to end with a promo from The Collective, which this show is part of. The Collective was started by a few like-minded podcasters who wanted to network in the most traditional sense. It has become a repository for ideas, crossovers, and potential guest appearances. And here is that promo. Hi, I'm Pax. And I'm Abigail. Welcome to Ghost Spider Groupies, a podcast dedicated to Gwen Stacy of Earth-65, also known as Spider-Gwen and Ghost Spider, where we review her comics, discuss news, and give our opinions about all things Gwen-65. Right now, we are reading through Gwen's main solo series. Each week, we break down a new arc and discuss our and the listeners' thoughts. Tune into each episode and come on this journey through the character's history with us, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, is a fan-made production, and no copyright infringement is intended, or happening, or even understood. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at 
free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peacelovproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page.